Listening to the Coffee Hour, I'm Andy Bates. Thanks to Concordia University Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. Well, it has been a little bit, it's been a minute since we've had a chance to dig into searching the scriptures in the Lutheran Witness. The June-July issue covers two months, so now it is August. It's time to dig into searching the scriptures for the month of August. Joining us today, the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of the Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, welcome back. Thank you, Andy. Good to be here. I hope you had a good summer. I did. It was hot. It's continued <laughs> it's hot. to be hot, yes. But for the most part, it's been a great summer. How about yourself? It, same. Yes, it's been a good summer. I got a little bit of time away to hang out with family and relax. And good to be back in the studio and ready to search the scriptures. Indeed. I, it's been so long. I you know, I had to kind of refresh my mind in terms of what we had done with the Bible study, because I feel like it's been forever. It's only been <laughs> an extra 30 days. So... August issue of the Lutheran Witness, the the title of this month's Searching the Scriptures, United in the Bond of Peace. We're working through Ephesians, correct? That is correct. We are working through the Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We have made it, well, this is the seventh month, now eighth month, so the, the seventh issue for the year. And so we've made it about halfway through the book of Ephesians, and we are picking up in chapter four. All right, so we're going to take a look at, are, are we ready for the first question? Yeah, we can go ahead and dive in. All right, read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. How does the walk of the Christian differ from the walk of the rest of the world? And what is the bond of peace? Let's begin with the reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then what the second passage we'll get to here in a minute, what we're doing is, is talking about the contrast here between the way that Christians walk and the way the world walks. And here at the beginning, St. Paul urges Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which the Christians have been called. That is, urging Christians not simply to do something, of course, that's part of it, but rather to walk more in the sense of being. Walk as who you are as a child of God. We contrast this, of course, with Ephesians chapter 2 where St. Paul writes this, and you, so this is, you know, prior to the Gentile Ephesians coming to faith and, and being born through the waters of baptism as children of God, he describes them this way, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the air, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the contrast here is between walking as Christians, walking in life, and a little bit ironically, kind of a, a little bit like an oxymoron, walking in death as those who, who, are, who are following the prince of the power of the air, which, as we talked about in that study a few months ago, is a reference to, to Satan. So how, how do these differ? Well, if we compare them in, in Ephesians chapter 2, the world walks following the prince of the power of the air, following Satan. They live according to the desires 
desires and the passions of their flesh, right? The old sinful flesh that desires its own, to fulfill its own things rather than the will of God to to fulfill its own sinful desires, right? Carrying out the desires of these bodies, of their body, and then thereby making them children of wrath. That is, those children who deserve and will receive the wrath of God for their sins. In contrast to this, the Christian walks in a manner worthy of of their calling. Now, once again, the calling comes first. It is not the walk that makes them worthy. Rather, they are called first, and then they walk in accord with that calling in Jesus Christ. And this is a calling to be who they are, that is, to be a child of God. Now, what's interesting is as we look at this calling that Paul calls them to walk in, it's really kind of fascinating, right? Um, First off, it is in humility and gentleness and patience. It is bearing with one another, it is being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, what's fascinating is this walk is the walk of a prisoner. That's how Paul describes himself. I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling, right? This is a prisoner for the Lord. Here, St. Paul is making this wonderful play on this term for prisoner. The term for prisoner here in, in the Greek is desmios, and uh, and he is a prisoner both in preparation to be to state his case before Caesar here in a little bit, but also a prisoner in the sense of a Christian, one who is bonded, a bondservant for the Lord. In other words, one of Christ, God's, God's prisoners, God's, you might say in some sense, slave, one who belongs to God. And this is the walk that we are to have also as prisoners for the Lord. Now, this play on the word prisoner comes out again at the very end of verse 3 when he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the second part of our question. This phrase, bond of peace, directly recalls the idea of prisoner, right? When we think of peace, you know, you think of, you know, war, for instance, or conflict. And when you think of peace, you think of freedom in the sense of freeing the prisoners of war, right? Well, this <laughs> this phrase, bond of peace, is a once again, it's kind of a little bit of an oxymoron because it literally is soon desmiois, that is a prisoner with peace, right? To be prisoners together, to be bonded together. In other words, it totally, I don't want to say subverts, but alters our understanding of what it means to be in peace. The point here is, as we've talked about in the book of Ephesians kind of time and time again, there was this essential conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. How were they to relate together? How were they to eat together? How, do, how were they to belong to one another? Paul makes a huge point about Jesus being the one who destroys the dividing wall of hostility in his own flesh, all the sort of things. So the point he's making here is that Jews and Gentiles, God's people, are bound together, uh, prisoners together of peace. That is to say, they belong to our Lord who has called them into this calling, and it is only in this calling that we are prisoners of peace, that we actually have true freedom. This is a traditional Lutheran, or well, yeah, Lutheran category of this, the bonds that, well, I should say it this way. This is the, the traditional way of expressing Christian freedom, that only by being bound to Christ are we then, in fact, truly, truly free. So that's kind of what he's getting here in this, this whole section is that we are bound together, united together through the Spirit in this, this, this bond of peace. This I, I kind of like the language of prisoner of peace, right? That we are kind of bound together here in this. Question two. Yeah, let's do it. Read Ephesians chapter four, verses four through six. What is the one body? Why does St. Paul repeat one over and over again? 
Let's just read the passage here. This, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. A couple of things to note here. First off, we can, uh, let's just kind of, well, we'll look at some of the grammatical details. He, he uses the term one or the, the number one seven times, right? So we have here the notion of completion as he's talking about God and the perfect God. The, the number seven is usually one that we use to denote perfection and completion. We also have a reverse Trinitarian formula here. So it starts with the spirit, right? There is one body and one spirit. And then in verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, a reference to Jesus Christ, and then one God and father of all, right? So the, the father. So you have this father, son, and Holy Spirit, but in kind of reverse of the format that we would normally cover here and talk about. And so he's, this is actually, this, these three verses are actually kind of poetic. You can, you get a sense of it in the, in the English also. If you look at the Greek, it actually sounds different. It's got a different meter and, and rhyme to it. And that's exactly what he's going for. This is kind of a poetic section here. And he's pointing them to the work of, of the Holy Spirit in the church, right? There is one body numerous times throughout his letters, also in this this letter as well. St. Paul talks about the body of the church, that is Christ, his body, right? And we're going to later on, even in this section, we're going to talk about the church growing up into Christ, who is the head of the church, right? And all of this is done as we are called to faith, one faith, by the one baptism, right? So this emphasis, this repeated emphasis on one, 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 over and over and over again, is to point out once again that they are united together, right, through this bond of peace. They are one church, they are one body, they are brought together in this one baptism, just as there is one God who 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 is over all and through all and in all. So that's kind of the idea here, that they are uh, all together, walking together uh, as the church. Question number three? Yeah. All right. Read Ephesians chapter four, verses seven through eight. Define grace, what is meant by the measure of Christ's gifts, or I'm sorry, by the measure of Christ's gift, what passage does St. Paul quote, and what is the context of that passage? How does it apply to Christ? All right, verse 7. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. First off, when he talks in verse 7 about the measure of Christ's gift, it kind of gives, we could we could hear this as we're measuring out grace, that we each kind of have it in a little different way, kind of like he talks about in Corinthians, one body and many members, right? Some people are fingers, some people are toes, this kind of a thing, and, and that these are each different kinds of grace. But I think here, one thing we need to keep in mind is his emphasis all throughout Ephesians is on unity and being one. So the point here is not that there are, that there, that there is here different kinds of grace, but that the same grace was given, and it is an immeasurable grace, right? As he talked about in the first, mm-hmm. where he talks about the riches and the overflowing riches and the unknowable knowledge of God, right? That this is so deep, it actually can't be measured. So that's something we need to keep in mind as we get into here defining the beginning of this. The the first question we have, or the first part of the, the question is define grace. So oftentimes we use the word grace without actually working on the definition. What does it actually mean? Grace is God's gracious disposition, his attitude toward us on account of Christ's work 
In other words, he doesn't look at us through our sinfulness. He doesn't look at us as a consequence of what we have done to violate his law, but he looks at us through the suffering and death of Christ. As Christians who receive faith and 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 his forgiveness, he now sees us through this, this through Jesus Christ. And this is his gracious disposition toward us on account of Christ's work. And and then he pulls in this passage from Psalm 68 to discuss this. Psalm the, the, the quote here, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is from Psalm 68, verse 18, which is a psalm about God going up to the temple. So this could very well have been a psalm, for instance, that David wrote when the ark was brought into Jerusalem to Mount Zion, right? It could have also been a psalm that might have been used at the dedication of the temple, for instance, something like that. But the idea is God is going up to his temple. People are watching it go up to the temple. And, uh, and this is a part of this idea here. In reference, uh, now St. Paul takes this and says this is a reference to Jesus Christ, right? That he ascends high, he leads host to captives. And then he actually changes the very ending here, the original passage. Let's see if I have it here. The original text says that he receives gifts among men. In other words, God is the one receiving gifts. St. Paul actually alters the text a little bit and says he gave gifts to men. And then he says this is in reference to really the ascension of our Lord, as we're going to get to in the next section. And we're going to talk then about, in the next question, what these gifts are that he gives to men. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Really interesting. Wow. So how does it apply how does it apply to Christ Christ is the one who then well let's do this how about we answer that question in the next one we'll do that because it'll all come together a little better and we'll do that in just a moment sounds good (laughs) we are searching the scriptures in the August issue of the Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins we'll be back in just a moment I'm Andy Bates At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. We are searching the scriptures in the August issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor of The Lutheran Witness. All right, we are in Ephesians chapter 4 today in this issue, and this is on, what, page 28, if I have that correct. That is correct. In the August issue of The Lutheran Witness, if you want to follow along there. And so we're taking a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Right now we're at verses 7 and 8. And, uh, and then we're going to go into the next yes. question. All right, you yes. ready for question number four? Read Ephesians chapter four, verses nine through 10. To what event is St. Paul referring when he speaks about descending and ascending? So verse eight finishes, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then verse nine continue. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also 
descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, all of this in the English version, you'll see it's in parentheses. This is kind of an aside that further explains this quote from Psalm 68, verse 18. And what Paul is basically saying here is that that passage from 68, 18 applies to Christ because it describes his, his, his incarnation, his descending from heaven, his state of humiliation, and then also his ascension into heaven afterwards, right? He's saying he descended into the lower regions of the earth, not a reference as the early church fathers, well, I should say it this way. The early, many of the early church fathers thought this was a reference, Christ's descent into hell, mm-hmm. and then the harrowing of hell, where you know he goes down and, and conquers Satan and then brings all the Old Testament saints up from hell to heaven. The problem with this interpretation is that the scriptures very clearly indicate that the Old Testament saints were with our Lord in heaven, right? Abraham, you know, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom up in heaven, right? So it's pretty clear that Jesus understood the Old Testament saints to be in heaven. I think the better reference here is that it actually describes Christ's incarnation, his humiliation, and then his exaltation, his his ascension into the into heaven again. So, and then of course that he might fill all things, you know, sitting down at the right hand of, of God and assuming all power and authority. So, that's that's kind of what that was getting to. That that's a reference to his his ascension. Anything else on nine and ten? And the giving gifts to men actually leads us into the next question. What does it mean that he gave gifts to men? Well, that's what we get in in verse 11. I guess that's what we're getting at. All right. Question number five. Read Ephesians chapter four, verses 11 and 12. St. Paul now explains the gifts Jesus gave to men from verse eight. What are these gifts? We commonly misunderstand the term ministry. What does it mean here? And who does the work of ministry? Ephesians 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then it will continue on in verse 13. So this is probably one of the more interesting passages in Scripture in which we get to learn the power of the comma. It's a pretty incredible thing. Uh, and it's also why we'll never fit. We won't finish the study because there's just a lot to discuss here. Did you know there's actually a fascinating story about this, this business that because they placed the comma in the wrong place, ended up having to pay millions and millions of dollars in overtime because the comma wasn't in the right place. Have you heard the story? No, I've not, but I believe it. It's the million-dollar comma. It's fantastic. And and the reason I mention that here is this is exactly what we have in this passage. There is a huge debate over where to place a comma in verse 12. What are we talking about here? Well, we're talking, first of all, about the gifts. Verse 8 concludes, and he gave gifts to men. Well, what are these gifts? Verse 11 says, and he gave, here's precisely what he gave, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists the shepherds, and the teachers, right? So this is a five-fold gift that he gives to the church. Three of these were a one-time gift for a particular time. Two of them are ongoing gifts that he continues to sustain his church through these gifts. So the first three are the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists. Apostles refers to the 12 chosen by Christ. There are only 12. There are, there, is no more, there are no more apostles being filled in this office. This was the one-time office, those who traveled with Christ and whom he personally sent out to proclaim the gospel. The prophets is a, another interesting category. There seems to be a group of people between the apostles and, uh, well, during Paul's life and then sometime after that had some, some type of direct revelation that, uh, that Paul was in, in conversation with and, and who knew. This is no longer 
longer an office that we have either. This was a one-time office during the time of right after the Christ's ascension into heaven. The evangelists is another group that has three kind of different ways that it might be interpreted. It could be a, a another office in the early church like Philip, who was called an evangelist, the one who met with the Ethiopian eunuch. So that might be that. It could also be a transitional role between apostles and prophets and then shepherds and teachers. It could also simply refer to the gospel writers. They're often called evangelists. So it could be any of those three. But once again, it's not typically an office that we see in the church today. I mean, that said, there are younger church bodies throughout. I know in Asia there are some, but kind of throughout the world that have an office of evangelist. And it's usually actually kind of in a reversed order where the pastor, the evangelist is typically under the pastor. But, but but it's, it's often not an office that we have today. So the two kind of ongoing offices that we still have today are shepherds, what we would call pastors, right? Pastor and shepherd is the same word, and then teachers. And so the pastor in the, in the scriptures in the church today are those who represent Christ and care for his flock. They, they care, provide for the flock spiritually in the proclamation of the word and the distribution of the sacraments. And then teachers are those who don't perform the public office in worship, but in in the general teaching of the congregation. So this is not a teacher in the sense of the teacher who's teaching you math and science and this type of thing, but rather the teacher who's responsible for catechizing you in the faith. So the general general teacher would do some of this in the Christian congregation. Like if you have a school and you have teachers that are teaching Bible class, well, then they're participating in this a little bit. But typically it would also be connected with the office of pastor as well. So these are the kind of the fivefold office. Now, what does this fivefold office do? Here we have a breakdown of, of three tasks that, this, the, that pastors now predominantly would do. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ. Those are the three things. The question about the commas here in verse 12, typically, or I should say it this way, in a lot of English translations, it simply says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, as though the saints are the, work that, the ones doing the work of ministry. However, this is a... a an understanding that's not traditionally Lutheran, that doesn't really express what the, the Bible expresses about the office of pastor. Pastors equip the saints, they do the work of ministry, they, the, and through that work, the body of Christ is built up. This, in part, I think, our misunderstanding here is because we have broadened this term ministry to include all sorts of things, right? In the UK, they have ministers that sit in political office and do, do things in political office. We use this term minister for all sorts of stuff. Here, the term is very specific in that it refers to the proclamation of the word of God and the administration of the sacraments. And this properly belongs to the work of pastors in the public expression of this. So I guess the way to say it here is in, in standard Lutheran language, we would actually include that comma here so that to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ are the three things that the office of pastor does. Does that make sense? I think so. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Commas are an important thing. <laughs> we love commas. Commas save lives. <laughs> That's right. All right. Let's see. Question number six. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Read Ephesians chapter four, verses 13 through 14. Why does Christ give the church these gifts? How does St. Paul describe Christians before and after reaching maturity? 13 and 14. So he equipped the saints, work of ministry, building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
Okay, so the contrast here is between Christians who are children, right, that, that are influenced by doctrines and craftiness and deceitful schemes, and those who have grown into mature manhood, the measure of Christ. Mature manhood here is 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 kind of is why he gives us these pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, shepherds, teachers. These are these are for the building of the body of Christ that we would grow up into Christ, that we would be mature in our faith. The idea here is we talk about a man being in the image of God. The the perfect image of what a man should be and should look like is in Jesus Christ. So that as we grow in our faith, we will come to look more and more like Jesus Christ, to, to be who he is, to grow up into him who is our head, and to grow up into what he has taught us and what he has given us by his word. And in contrast, this then grew, roots us and grounds us, as we're going to see in the last two verses, in the doctrine of the church, right? Right? Not every wind of doctrine that changes, but actually rather in the word of God grounded in Christ himself. So maturity, the fullness of God, the fullness of maturity occurs as we grow into Jesus Christ and through the preaching of his word. Question number seven. If we have time. Read Ephesians chapter four, verses 15 through 16. St. Paul exhorts us to speak the truth in love. Is it loving to refrain from speaking the truth? Is it loving to speak a lie? What is the result of speaking the truth in love? Verse 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Uh, Is it loving to to lie? Is it loving to not speak the truth? I, I made a mistake in our first January issue of the Lutheran Witness in which I said, don't worry about whether or not we're being loving, worrying about whether or not we're teaching the Word of God. The fact of the matter is, however, teaching the Word of God is the loving thing to do, even when it's painful, right? It is not loving to let your brother continue going on in sin. It is not loving to not warn those who are continuing in sin that the consequence of this might be eternal damnation. Those who reject Jesus Christ reject him to their eternal peril. As we grow up in love, as we grow up into the body of Christ, we will learn to speak this truth. We, we seek to speak this truth to those, all those around us, whether belonging in the body of Christ or those in the world with whom we encounter, with whom we have conversations, with whom we live. We will gladly and joyfully speak the truth as it needs to be spoken because it's only as we do that that we grow into Christ who is the head and who keeps us together in him. All of this belongs together. And it creates then a unity as we speak this truth, that is, speak the word of God in this love. It creates a unity that keeps us all bound together in the bond of peace. Searching the scriptures in the August issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, how can we get a copy of The Lutheran Witness if we don't have one already? If you don't have one already, visit cph.org witness and you can subscribe there. You can also learn a lot more about what we're publishing and doing by visiting our website, which is witness.lcms.org. Very good. Witness.lcms.org. My guest today, the Reverend Roy Askins, Managing Editor for The Lutheran Witness. Thanks so much for joining me on The Coffee Hour. Thank you for having me. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.